we are taught and shown by the Apostle Paul that you can't come to God. If whatever you might believe God is, as Christians, we have a very definite view of who God is and his son Jesus and all of that. But any human being on the face of the earth has got to decide how, if there's a God up there, how am I going to be right with that God? Or how do I, uh, how do I have a relationship with him at all? And all of the world's religions, without an exception, and sadly, even some parts of Christianity, all say, here is what you must do to have a relationship with the deity or deities, him, her, it, them, whatever it is. Here's how you have a relationship. You do certain things, and this will uh, get you right with God. You offer the right uh, sacrifices. You give uh, uh, the right amount of money. Uh, You perform certain duties, follow certain rules and laws and regulations. And hopefully at the end of the day, the scales, when God brings out his scales and he puts you in the scales, uh, the, the positives of your life will outweigh the negatives. Historic Orthodox Christianity is nothing like that. From the beginning, from Genesis chapter 3, God has said, you, ha- you don't have the ability to get back into the garden. You put a cherubim out there with a flaming sword. Nobody's crossing him back into that garden unless they pass under the sword. In other words, they have to come under judgment and death. And what we could not do for ourselves, God did for us in the person and work of our Lord Jesus. He passed under the sword. He took in himself our sin and opened the way back to God to have a right relationship. And if that's true, and the Apostle Paul believed it was true, so did all the apostles, so has the church throughout all ages, and Sadly, at times they've gone off the rails, but the historic, authentic church has always believed that it's Jesus Christ plus nothing. But there's nothing we bring. Our hands are empty. We come and we ask simply for grace and for mercy. Please, O Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And this is the great gift, I think, that the book book of Romans, the letter to the Romans gives us, Paul explains this in beautiful detail of how we are right with God. And we've enjoyed, I think, many weeks up to uh, chapter 9, where we're going to be today, uh, looking at some of these things. You get to chapter 9, and all of a sudden, it's like, oh my gosh, here are some real challenges to what we believe about God. And unless you think it's just modern people that have these questions No, no, they had these questions in the ancient world as well. And Paul puts his finger on it. So before we read the scripture, let me ask you a question. How did you get here? How did you get into this room? Don't tell me you went on the internet because that's just the means by which you got here. What is the real reason that you're here? The real reason is because you were born in a country 
where a church like Christ the King could exist, and somebody may have told you, yeah, you may have found it on the internet and you made your way over here, but why did that happen? Well, because you were, you were lucky enough to be born in the United States of America where you can freely exercise your faith. But why was that? Well, you've got to go back a little further. Well, because my parents, like my parents, my grandparents, emigrated from a foreign country. Some legally, some illegally. My wife's parents and her emigrated from a foreign country. Or maybe you were born here, generations going back to the Mayflower and pilgrims. Maybe that's why. But why is that? You can keep tracing it back and back and back to infinity, but at the end of the day, the reason that you're in this room, the single only reason that you're here, is because God has been working from time immemorial, from eternity past, to get you here and to get you home. And when, they, when we say that, we say, oh my goodness, does that mean that we're just puppets on a string? No, absolutely not. But what it does mean is that God is faithful. Faithful to his promises. Faithful to his first promise in Genesis 3.15 that he would crush the head of the serpent and would restore us through no effort of our own purely by grace, because he loves us. And that raises a lot of questions. Well, how come you didn't do it for everybody? How come, he's not, how come this one, that one? All good questions. But let's read the text this morning. We're in Romans chapter 9, and, uh, and, and we'll go through this quickly. We, we, uh, pro- I'm probably going to have to come back and spend a few more weeks on it. This is such an important part of Scripture, we don't want to give it uh, a short shrift. So hear the word of God, Romans 9. We're going to start in verse 14 and read to the end of the chapter. It's printed in your bulletin, and if you have a Bible, you can open it there. And if you don't have a Bible, please get one. You can take it. We have Bibles, hundreds of them, and they're nice, ESV. So if you want one, uh, please see Dawson or I will get you one. Now hear God's word. Are we saying then that God is unfair? Of course not. For God said to Moses, I will show mercy to anyone I choose. And I will show compassion to anyone I choose. So it is God who decides to show mercy. We can neither choose it nor work for it. For the scriptures say that God told Pharaoh, I have appointed you for the very purpose of displaying my power in you and to spread my fame throughout the earth. So you see, God chooses to show mercy to some, and he chooses to harden the hearts of others, so they refuse to listen. Well then, you might say, why does God blame people for not responding? Haven't they simply done what he makes them do? No, don't say that. Who are you? A mere human being to argue with God. Should the thing that was created say to the one who created it, why have you made me like this? When a potter makes jars out of clay, doesn't he have a right to use the same lump of clay to make one jar for decoration? 
and another to throw away the garbage into? In the very same way, even those of us on, even though, excuse me, in the same way, even though God has a right to show his anger and his power, he is very patient with those on whom his anger falls, who are destined for destruction. He does this to make the riches of his glory shine even brighter on those to whom he shows mercy, who were prepared in advance for glory. And we are among those whom he selected, both Jews and Gentiles. Concerning the Gentiles, God says in the prophecy of Hosea, those who were not my people, I will now call my people, and I will love those whom I did not love before. And then, at the place where they were told, you are not my people, there would be called the children of light. Concerning Israel, Isaiah the prophet spoke, Though the people of Israel are as numerous as the sand of the seashore, only a remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth quickly and with finality. And Isaiah said the same thing in another place. If the Lord of heaven's armies had not spared a few of our children, we would have been wiped out like Sodom and Gomorrah. What does all this mean? Even though the Gentiles were not trying to follow God's standards, they were made right with God. And it is by faith that this took place. But the people of Israel who tried so hard to get right with God by keeping the law never succeeded. Why not? Because they were trying to get right with God by keeping the law. They stumbled over the great rock in their path. God warned them of this in the scriptures when he said, I am placing a stone in Jerusalem that makes people stumble, a rock that makes them fall, but anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. This is the word of the Lord. All right, well... I, I hope, and I know, I know some people read these passages from uh, Romans about God electing, uh, loving Jacob, hating Esau, and, and the idea of, of choosing and, and not being able to choose and, and all of that, that it, in some people it causes uh, uh, no problem whatsoever. They just say, oh yeah, I totally believe that. And that doesn't that doesn't accord with reality. So if you're one of those people and you just have no problem, God elects whoever, and I'm, I'm totally okay with this, uh, you really need to come talk to us because that's not what the Apostle Paul is saying, not in any way, shape, or form. The doctrine of election, of God choosing and electing and hardening and not hardening and all of that is in no way meant to tell anybody how to get saved or how they are saved or how they're made right with God. What the Apostle Paul meant when he starts talking about these, as was true in the Old Testament, which we'll look at in a moment because he's, he is profusely quoting the Old Testament, is to give assurance to people 
that they're safe with him, that they can trust him and that he will not fail. Because on the outside of our lives, sometimes it looks like we are not going to make it. You go to the doctor and they say, you know, I got bad news for you. Or you look at your bank account and there's bad news for you to see. Or you, you, you have a relative that's, that's hooked on drugs or one of your kids goes off the rails or your marriage falls apart or there's a death in your family. Whatever the case may be, in the back of everyone's mind, we're asking, it is not just Christians, any human being. What did I do? Why is this happening to me? What, how do I get back on track? How can I be right? And the Apostle Paul is giving the human race a gift, saying, you know, th- these things are going to happen. Why? Because we sinned and fell short of the glory of God. Every human being has this thing, this dead thing inside of us what he calls the old man, the sin nature. And it's enslaved us. It's holding us down. And he goes through eight chapters of Romans expounding the glories and the, of grace and faith and, and the goodness of Jesus and the fact that Jesus died for us in our place. He goes through all of that and he says it's for anyone that will believe, everyone who will trust him. But if you've been a Christian for very long, or you know, it doesn't take much, and we begin to doubt. Troubles can come. I got an email from a young man to, uh, uh, the other day that used to come to our church, and he just, he's lost. He doesn't know what to do. What am I going to tell him? What would you tell him? Well, read your Bible more. Pray more. Start shooting off all the things, right? Here's what you need to do. Well, I don't know about you all, but good luck with that. You can work yourself to the bone and never find God. Because we are not faithful. He is faithful. And that truth has got to be drilled into your life unrelentingly, with high energy, daily, weekly in church, being in a life group during the week, not communicating just with Christians, but having enough of the church people in your life to help you because you're not going to make it on your own. You just won't. You will sink, you will drown. And so the Apostle Paul hits chapter 9 and he said, look, my people Israel, my own nation couldn't do it. They tried to establish their own righteousness and in doing so, they lost God. And he goes through this whole thing, the first 13 verses of Romans, you can read it, very difficult passages to understand about God choosing and electing and, and Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. But behind all of that, folks, this is not a proof text for the doctrine of election so that churches can just argue. Calvinists and Arminians and this one and that one and everybody in between. I'm four points, I'm three points, I'm one point, I'm no point. I don't know what I am. That's not what he's doing. What he's telling you is God is faithful. 
Will you trust him? And he does it for three chapters. Explains it. We're going to go through all of it. And if he gets sidetracked and you start thinking, well, does this mean that I don't have free will? Does this mean that I don't have choice? Does this mean I'm a puppet on a string and God's just dangling me around? Does it mean that everything is settled before and I can't do anything, nothing? You are totally missing the point. And it's my job and Dawson's job and the job of the officers of this church, elders and deacons and women's council members and those of us that are charged with being your shepherds to make sure that you don't get into that crazy stuff that will just rob you of your humanity. And then we say, well, I'm okay with this doctrine. No, no, it's not a doctrine. It's God's faithfulness. And he's telling you why. Why you can stay, why you can stay, why you're good. I'm faithful. I got you. Don't worry. Trust me. And when things are black and dark, and I know some of you have been there, I've been there, yikes. What are you going to resort to? What a good church member you've been, what a great Christian you've been, what an outstanding, unbelievably great pastor you are. No, that isn't going to do it. What will do it is to get your eyes off yourself and look up to the cross to the one, if you read some of the other scriptures, we'll probably do it next week, the one who was really chosen, the one who was really elect, the one who really and truly surrendered his whole will to his Father. And he was able to do it freely, something that we cannot do because of the sin that so easily besets us so let's take a a crack at this this morning I know I'm not going to be able to get through all of it but what Paul is doing here is he's talking about election predestination things that are back behind the curtain you know in the Wizard of Oz you know the 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 and I I don't like to make God uh, compare him to the Wizard of Oz but it serves its purpose Behind that curtain, Toto is not supposed to get the curtain and pull it aside. You can't know what's behind the curtain. You can't even understand what's behind the curtain because you are simply a creature. But what was the lie in the garden? Eat this fruit and you can become like God. And from then till now, this is what humanity is struggling with, is this Desire for autonomy, I can understand and I can know, I can know good and evil and therefore I don't need God. I don't need his tree of life. I can do it myself. And folks, that's not just Christian, everybody's that way. This is a human condition. It's so, it's so self-evident that you kind of wonder, well, how, how, how does anybody even wonder about it? But they do. And the objection, God is not fair. If he's actually back there and he's actually got a plan and he's applied that plan to your life and to your family, going back perhaps generations, we don't know, 
If he's got that plan and he's in love with you and he is going to do everything to see you safe with him, righteous, clothed in robes of righteousness, the first thing that comes into our mind when we hear that is, God is not fair. How come he did, it? He did that for Chuck? Why didn't he do that for Ugo? And we've been asking ourselves that for years because he's a ruling elder in our church. And we're wondering how he got in here. You too, right? <laughs> I mean, folks, listen. Instead of, of getting this news from Scripture, you know, you were lost in your sin, dead in your sin and trespass. God breathed life into you and brought you back. And we go, oh, wow, i got to tell the world. I have to tell everybody because there's probably people out there like me that don't know about that. Instead, we go completely sideways. And we start saying God is not fair. That's what these people would do. Paul, Paul was a good rabbi. Believe me, he knew how to ask questions. He knew how to, how to use rhetoric. He, he was just brilliant. So in verse 14, he just finished 1 through 13. He's talking about Jacob and Esau and choosing and elect and all that stuff, which is troublesome. But then he says, are you saying, in verse 14, look at it, are you saying God is unfair? Of course not. God said to Moses, I will show mercy and compassion on anyone I choose. Now that has the ring of some arrogance, perhaps, in our our minds. But he's quoting something. An Old Testament verse. And he does this throughout the book of Romans. But in, here he gets down into... And, if, and this is why you have pastors and, and teachers like Gary was teaching Sunday school and, and Brandon and, and Hugo and these guys are teaching. This is why you need somebody to help you along. Doesn't mean you can't find this out for yourself. You can certainly do that. But there's an Old Testament verse behind every single one of these sections that he's talking about that we need to know what the context is, right? Context determines meaning. Not the individual words, not a dictionary, because words can have lots of meanings. But what is the context? The context will give the word meaning. And I hope, I hope we'll have time to get to that this morning. If not... Uh, We'll do it next week. Are you saying God is unfair? Of course not. God said to Moses, I will show mercy, compassion on anyone I choose. And then he finishes, so it is God who decides to show mercy. We can neither choose it nor work for it. We can neither choose it nor work for it. What's going on in this verse? What is Moses referring to? Well, here's what he's referring to. This comes directly from the Old Testament. It comes from Exodus. And it's the the section in Exodus 33 and 34, chapter 33 and 34, where they're on Mount Sinai. Many of you know the story. Uh, God has brought them out of Egypt. Ten plagues, split the Red Sea, feeding them with manna. They're there in the mountain. He tells Moses, come up to the mountain. I'm going to give you the law so that we can get along with each other. And so Moses goes up the mountain while he's gone. While he's up there in the mountain, 40 days, 40 nights. What do the children of Israel do? Class. What do they do? 
idols. They make calf, a golden calf. They take their jewelry and they give it to Aaron, Moses' brother, who's the priest. He's the big shot, the religious, the holy guy, the professional holy person. And he makes an idol out of gold, a calf, which was very common in the ancient Near East. That was the god of almost all of the Mediterranean uh, basin were these calves uh, of gold and and, uh, they they denoted fertility and plenty. And so they had these, these images. And while he's getting the... To listen, folks, this is, a, this is the story. While he's getting the Ten Commandments, God tells Moses, you better go back down. They have just... They have just done something so bad that I will probably have to kill them. And Moses comes down. What does he see? The golden calf. He takes the two tablets. Yikes. Throws them down, cracks them, breaks them into pieces, whatever. He punishes the people. Moses does. And then he goes back up the mountain because God tells him, you better come back up here because we're going to have to do, we're going to start over. I'm going to obliterate them. And I'm going to raise up a new people from you because you're faithful. And Moses intercedes and he begs, he says, no, God, please don't do that. Show me your glory. I want to see who you really are. Show me who you really are. Your glory. And that's where this quote comes from. Listen, I'm going to read you the whole thing. God comes and passes before Moses And he says this, God says this about himself while Moses is hidden in the cleft of a rock. God says this. He tells Moses who he is. Now you think, well, gosh, hasn't he told him already? Yeah, little by little, but now he's going to fully explain who he is to Moses so that they can go forward by grace, through faith, plus nothing. Why? Because God is faithful. It's it's staggering, folks, to think of it. I hope you'll spend the week thinking about that. An entire population of people callously sinning after seeing all these miracles and deliverance from Egypt and the destruction of their arch enemy Pharaoh and on and on and on, within weeks, they turned their back on God. And still, he says, I will be faithful. Here's what he says about himself. The Lord, the Lord, a God of mercy, grace, slow to anger, abounding, and he uses the word in Hebrew, chesed, which is a... Powerful. They've written whole books about the word chesed. It's translated loving kindness, tender mercy, steadfast love. It's, it's God's covenant loyalty, His faithfulness, His faithful love that can never be turned aside. Keeping steadfast chesed, keeping chesed, for a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, transgression, sin, but 
who will by no means clear the guilty and will visit their iniquity on them to the third or fourth generation. And right there we go, oh, look how unfair he is. Oh, these are parents' sin and the kids are getting... This is not what he's saying. This is a very typical thing in Hebrew where you, you use a literary device to say, look at how great something is and look at how, in comparison, how, uh, how nothing it is. He's saying, my grace, my mercy, my compassion, my healing my redemption for my people, I will extend for a thousand generations. But their sins and their iniquities, in comparison to that, will only affect three or four. Do you see the difference? He's not being literal. He's begging you not to be literal. He's begging you to look at the big picture, a literary device that says, look at how great and faithful God is compared to what should have been said I will destroy you to a thousand generations because that's what the gods of the ancient Near East would do. They were vengeful and hateful and cruel and spiteful. The gods of Egypt and the gods of the ancient Near East were horrible. They were worse than human beings. This was a revelation. You mean he's going to forgive us? Why? Why will he forgive us after the golden calf? And if you read the rest of Exodus, we just don't have time. He says it's because I made a promise to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Also three sketchy guys. I made a promise. I will keep that promise. I will do it no matter what it takes. In fact, I'll show you how I will do it. I will do for you what you cannot do for yourself. I will choose you. I will elect you. I will secure your salvation at the cost of the one who is truly elect and chosen. The one who's the most beautiful, the most beautiful thing I have in my life. And you can't even get your head around that. Folks, that is, how, do you, how do you manage that? Jesus Christ I'm going to give my son for you to show you how faithful I am. And our reply to God is, that's not fair. Okay, so Paul knows this. He knows what's going on in our heads. And he said, God is merciful. Mercy, what is mercy? Mercy, strictly speaking, is withholding punishment that you are due. So mercy means there's crime has been committed and you deserve punishment, but the merciful, whoever the, uh, the person or, or God behind us is showing mercy, he's withholding punishment. Well, what is grace then? Well, grace is giving you something you don't deserve. You don't separate them and say, well, it's half mercy, half grace. Uh, it's 100% mercy, 100% grace. They are interwoven, at least in the Bible they are. So when you talk about grace, you're talking about mercy. When you talk about mercy, you're talking about grace. And this is why when God describes himself, I'm merciful, I'm gracious, I'm loving, I'm compassionate. I have chesed. I have faithful love for my people. Incredible. 
the driving force for mercy in the Bible and grace, the driving force, is the love of God. He's not showing you mercy so he can get something from you. He's showing you mercy so he can have you. You can be his. Are you with me? I know this can make your brain hurt. Mine's been hurting all week. So he does a comparison, and I'll, I'll finish with this real quickly because we can't get, get through all this, but I hope you'll be patient because Israel has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. See, Paul's already said that in Romans 3.23. All have sinned. Now he's specifically saying Israel sinned and fell short of the glory of God. They deserved punishment. And so he does something very interesting. He compares the two nations, Israel on the one hand and Egypt on the other. That's what's going on with Pharaoh. Egypt, or Israel, received mercy on Mount Sinai. Mercy they did not deserve at God's expense. You with me? Egypt, on the other hand, God explains in verse 17, look at it. I've appointed you for the purpose of displaying my power and spread my fame throughout the earth. He's talking to Pharaoh. What is this all about? Very quickly, let me just tell you the story again. This comes from Exodus chapter 9. This is before the children of Israel are freed from Egypt. The plagues are going. And this quote comes between, it comes from chapter 9 of Exodus, verse 16, and it comes between the 6th and 7th plague. At the end of the 6th plague, it's interesting, at the end of the 6th plague, Pharaoh was still hardening his heart. God had not hardened his heart at that point. He was hardened his heart towards God. I won't let them go. I won't let them go. And God sends Moses and Aaron to go talk to him after the sixth plague. And here's what the quote is from from the book of Exodus. And we can't read it. it, You don't have it in Hebrew in your... uh, notes there, but I'm going to read it to you, not in Hebrew, but I'm going to read it to you the way it is literally, the way he literally said it, because it's fascinating. You see, my brother always says theology is all about vocabulary. Learn a few good words, and you will start to understand things. You've got to know what they mean. Listen, he goes, Moses is there, and he's talking to Pharaoh, but he's he's saying, God says this. Here it is. But now... I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. This is God talking to to Pharaoh through Moses. I could have, up to this point, six plagues in, I could have destroyed you. I could have wiped you from the face of the earth. But for this reason... Did I cause you to stand? This is exactly what it says in Hebrew, literally. For this reason did I cause you to stand. That word to stand means 
appointed. That's why in the NLT they, they uh, translated it appointed and in uh, other versions they use, uh, sometimes they use destined or I, I, I chose you, whatever the word is. But what it means is to cause you to stand. Or in other words, I appointed you, or better yet, even getting a little tighter, I caused you to survive these past six plagues. I spared you up to this point, the end of the sixth plague, there's more to come, to show you my power. That my name and my might might be proclaimed in all the earth, but you still lord it over my people and will not let them go. Now, does that sound like a puppet to you? That, that Pharaoh's a puppet dangling on a string and God's making him? God comes to him. I mean, for goodness sakes, folks, anybody can understand this. He goes to, to Pharaoh and he says, I've, I could have destroyed you. I haven't. I've stood you up. I've spared you. And then, just to put icing on the cake, he tells Pharaoh this. You can go read it. It's fascinating. He tells Pharaoh, plague number seven is coming and it's a bad one. It's going to be hail, H-A-I-L, not hail, hail. And it's going to come so bad and so strong, it's going to kill every living thing that is out of doors. And he tells Pharaoh and Moses, tells everybody, get your livestock indoors. Get your servants, your farm workers indoors. Get your, everybody go inside because when this plague comes, it's going to kill everything living that's outside. Who did he tell? Anybody listening? Who did he tell? Pharaoh, get your stuff inside. Moses, get your stuff inside. Get your livestock. Be prepared. It's coming. When God shows mercy, folks, he does not do it. And so he says in verse 18, and I'll stop there, God chooses to show mercy to some. He chooses to harden the hearts of others. So they refuse to listen. He's saying in any way that Pharaoh is a neutral party and neither are you. In fact, no one is neutral. You say, what about children? What about these beautiful children? Even they're not neutral. The seeds of rebellion are already in them and they cannot be taken out by anyone or you can't spank it out of them. I know some parents, you know, I was real big into spanking. And so I thought every infraction deserves a paddle. And it didn't do anything for my kids. It gave me a false sense of security. Because when they were too old to paddle, they just went and did whatever they wanted anyway. I couldn't get in and do anything. I couldn't change the inside, their nature. And what we cannot do for ourselves, God does for us. And we say it's not fair. God is not arbitrary. He's not capricious. He's not fickle. Rather, He has already, we already have hearts that are hard. So when we hear the gospel and we say, 
that's not fair. God is hardening our heart. We don't like him. We don't like that kind of God. He's overthrowing our free will. And folks, if you've been at Christ the King, if you've gone through any of our theology classes, the theology class that I taught, I explain in excruciating detail what that is a lie. You have free will. You can choose. He never says you can't choose. You can choose. He's begging you to choose. He's telling you choose. But here he's saying, don't make the mistake of thinking that you can talk back to God when he has shown you such great mercy. I'll finish with this quote from R.C. Sproul. All humanity will receive justice. All humanity will receive justice. Some will receive mercy. No one will receive injustice. So if you're going to worry about the people that God didn't call or didn't choose or whatever, and that's a legitimate concern, if you're going to worry about that, you have to ask yourself, is he doing an injustice to anyone? Or is he simply showing kindness? And if you say to yourself, well, why doesn't he do it to everybody? Wrong question. What is the right question? What is the only question that will truly motivate you to love and serve the people around you? What? Question. Not why didn't he do it for everybody. Anybody want to take a shot? Why did he not do it? Why did he do it for me? Why am I not blown away to the point that I can't that I have intense, deep compassion for people that are lost? You don't know who's going to be saved and who's going to be. You don't know anything. We don't know what. I know, folks. I know it's hard, but please. Will you give me another chance next week? Okay. I hope you'll trust him, will you?